Medieval literature, ancient languages, and the pre-modern way of looking at the universe were not just Lewis's study or day job, but his passion, his love, his life's work, his spiritual formation, and even his vocation. The purpose of this book is to explore how this third Lewis, the pre-modern or medievalist, is just beneath the surface even in his more appreciated, imaginative, and devotional writings. We will see that the great medievalist was not a successful modernizer of Christianity and writer of fiction despite the fact that he spent so much time studying old dusty books, but because of them. And that's from The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis by Jason M. Baxter. Pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College, and I'm very pleased to be talking to Jason Baxter today about his book, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. Jason M. Baxter is a speaker, author, and college professor. He writes on the relevance of medieval thought and literature, and especially medieval theology in Dante. In his popular writing and lectures, he talks about the arts, travel and literature, technology and humanism, science and culture, and modernity in light of the ancient world. Jason, thank you so much for coming on our show. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, thank you. Yeah, it's a nice melancholic rainy day in the middle of summer, so it's good for emo diversity. That is that is great. I have a not-so-secret deep appreciation for cloudy days. I recently went to Oxford, and I was appalled that the weather was clear and sunny instead of, you know, the kind of rainy weather I'd been expecting. But while I was there in Oxford, I was delighted to read through your book, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. I really enjoyed it, absolutely recommend it to our listeners. Um, I guess I'd just like to start start this interview with a fairly basic question. What's your book about? It is about how the weird things that Lewis did, as I jokingly call it, for his day job, seem to us kind of arcane. And it's I think it's difficult for a lot of Christian readers who love Lewis because of his the, the relevance of his message, the you know, how how modern and psychologically astute his pictures of us sort of struggling with sin and questions of vice and virtue. It's it's difficult for us to understand how that writer whom we've known and loved you know, I have since I was a teenager, like a lot of your listeners could spend his time doing things like, you know, practicing conjugations of verbs in Occitan, right? You know, this ancient right. Provençal language or yeah. Anglo-Saxon or how, why he wouldn't quote his, you know, or translate his scholarly quotations or why he would go to Oxford's Bodleian Library and sit with manuscripts of really strange books like Romain de la Rose or Bernard Silvestri's Cosmographia or Alan of Lille's De Plancto Nature or all these kinds of strange things. You would think that in some ways that he would be successful despite his day job. And I argue in this book, actually, surprise, surprise, it's because of it. And the sort of medieval 
aspect of Lewis's heart and mind is actually closer to the surface than you might know. Right before I got married, I was at a, a Boy Scout camp all summer long in the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. And there's a famous lake out there that has all these stones that are just about one inch beneath the water. And so you can walk out on the lake and everyone loves to take pictures of it. I think in a way, like, you know, lose his sort of medieval beliefs and his medieval experiences and how even how he even crafts his sense of vocation, his sense as a writer, his sense of what it means to be a Christian are just beneath the surface supporting him like those like those rocks of mine in, uh, in the lake in Minnesota. I love that. Yeah, for me, reading through this, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I, I became a medievalist and teach medieval works is because of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien to, to an extent. But what this book did for me um, reading it was really, it was like gathering a bouquet of flowers having to do with Lewis's medievalism and just kind of bringing them all together to me, it drew greater attention than I'd previously given to that sort of secret thread that runs through all of Lewis's work. I, I think this gets at something very important in Lewis's thought that is, as you say, very often overlooked. Well, I like how you even just say a bouquet of flowers, because one of Lewis's sources, as I tried to argue in the book, a late antique author by the name of Macrobius actually explains that's what authorship is. Authorship, mm -hmm. I guess in this instance, is kind of like a bee who goes from flower to flower and gathers, gathers pollen, right? And and then sort of turns it into a work of his own. But authorship is something like recycling. And that's, I, so yeah. I think that's, I, I like, I think it's astute. And I think it's, it's one of the aspects of Lewis in which he felt that he owed it to his audience to try to recycle some of these ancient ideas, some of these medieval ideas. They're just too good of ideas just to die hmm. and just be sort of ensconced in this strange surface, surface text, which no one will read either because of the access to the language or just the historical strangeness of it. But Lewis, if like a bee could land on that, gather the pollen from that idea, rewrite it. And rather than say a garden in the Middle Ages, set it in Venus in space yeah. and give old ideas fresh life and make them believable, feelable, breathable for a contemporary audience. Right, right. Yeah. So obviously I'm in like full sympathy with your project, right? But let's pretend that I'm not. And let's pretend that I value Lewis chiefly for his ability to defend Christianity to the modern world and for, you know, writing a good tale or two, right? The Narnia Chronicles, the way that they present Christianity and stuff like that. Why should I care that he was also a medievalist? Why should I find that important and maybe even follow in his footsteps into some medieval texts? Yeah, that's a great question. I generally think of it in this way, that if you admire Lewis, then you like to know his friends and you like to know his inklings. I'm taking just by the, the very nature of the, the title of this podcast that, that your listeners are in agreement. Humphrey Carpenter has that magnificent semi-fictional recreation of what a meeting of the Inklings must have been like. At That's the, wonderful, yeah. At the bird and the baby and the sort of jovial conversation. And Lewis was such a man of uh, what he himself obviously thought of himself as having a jovial temperament. He's such a magnanimous, friend-loving kind of soul. That you think that just sort of, you know, Lewis as a brain in a vat doesn't really make any sense. It makes the most sense in these sort of strong loves 
of his students and these strong loves of his friends and sort of enmeshed him. He's a great letter writer, right? You have these big three thick volumes. He felt it was his ethical obligation to respond to every letter that he received from his readers. And just in that sense, a gregarious, kind man who really found himself in, in this sort of network of, of friendships. So I think to see Lewis's friendship as not strictly bound, as Chesterton once put it, as those who just happen to be alive, right? This is Lewis at his best. This is Lewis avoiding chronological snobbery, right? This is Lewis sort of maintaining these these types of warm friendships across historical centuries. And I think for Lewis, one of the great virtues of having that type of reverence and piety is that you protect yourself against blind spots. You know, I think our age is particularly good at some virtues and we're particularly aware of some evils which we could profit our ancestors. But I think Lewis would just point out that, well, just because you're good at some doesn't mean you haven't lost touch with others, things that your ancestors might have practiced better than you did, known better, had a sense for that has been has, has completely evaporated. And I so I think if you know Lewis, you love the Inklings, and maybe you love also this sort of extended network of, of friendships. But when you befriend to the extent we can because of the vast historical differences between us. But when you befriend old text, then I think it gives you that ability to turn and begin to touch on blind spots if you read and study with a sense of reverence. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea of not just reading old texts, right? But befriending old texts. You get right. to that sort of two degree, you touch on that, even when you're talking about relating to God in the, in the chapter that, that talks about Buber's I and thou thing, that, that what we often tend to do, not just with God, not just with the natural world, but with literature as well, is to read it as though it's not written by a person, right? And to relate to it as an it rather than to the person who's writing it. Yeah. Even though obviously, again, that can mainly be a one-way Yeah, yeah, you're right. There's, um, something, there's something extraordinary about sort of taking an idea or a text and putting it under a microscope and trying to determine objectively its parts and, and its elements. I think if you're not engaged in, as you said, that I-you relationship, then in some sense you're invulnerable. You're incapable of change. And But it gives you also the sort of sense of being the critic in charge of something who I don't have to, I don't have to learn. I don't have to change. I don't have to run the risk of feeling morally inadequate in front of something. So I think, yeah, I think that's kind of neat. I think that sort of risky sense of daring of studying old historical things with a sense of reverence and a sense of piety, um, as opposed to merely just sort of objectively scientifically, but yeah, with this sort of capacity for befriending. Both as a teacher and as a scholar, when I go to when I go to conferences and see that many, many, many panels at the conferences are concerned almost exclusively with modern preoccupations, rather than necessarily understanding the past in light of the things that the past thought was important, right? And by the same token, when I talk with my students, when they read medieval literature or ancient literature, primarily because no one's taught them differently, they are judging that literature by, as you said, the 
list of virtues that we are particularly acutely aware of and and list of vices that we are aware of rather than attempting to tune in to the virtues and vices that the past can kind of teach us about there's kind of this just assumed evolution of human consciousness right that we yes. should be casting this stuff off behind us yeah, um, rather great. than learning from it um, yes this is this is just a good lewis thought isn't it in his cambridge address i'm going to paraphrase it slightly but he says something more or less look we spend more time around machines than we do natural realities and so that our psychological paradigms our psychological archetypes are shaped by the expectations of machines hmm. Anachronistically, uh, obviously Lewis is not talking about iPhones in the 1950s, but anachronistically, everyone knows that the iPhone 15 is going to be much better than the iPhone 13. Right. And I think we think of sort of that, those sort of uh, implicit assumptions of the evolution of machine life have snuck into our, even our sense of history and our sense of relationship to our ancestors. So it's that hardly without thinking of it, of course, we've morally improved since then. So I, I know, I definitely know what you're thinking about. I definitely know the experience you're describing. Thus, it's very easy for reading old texts to become uh, spot the ways in which ancients weren't modern and merely sort of criticize them with that implicit assumption that we are morally superior to they are in every possible way. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I think that I think that's Lewis's gift as a writer. Yeah. As a, as a scholar and seemingly the reports on his teaching as well, is that he didn't just share facts about ancient ideas, but had this incredible ability to create, uh, what could we call this, atmospheres, psychological realities in which old texts weren't just understood according to like sort of a number of elements, but were actually breathable, feelable, mm. creating this sort of sense of atmosphere. It's almost as if, you know, when the children of uh, the Pavensis, you know, suddenly arrive in Narnia and are breathing Narnian air. And look around in this world in which they feel out of place because they're now in a in a system, a logical system, a new world which makes sense, but not according to their standards. It's, it's as if Lewis consciously or unconsciously wanted to create every one of his academic books and every one of his academic lectures as creating atmospheric, breathable worlds in which for a brief moment, my modernity seems a little bit strange walking around in the foreign setting of the text that Lewis has this imaginative ability to create a world. So as Aslan creates Narnia, before the awestruck eyes of Diggory and uh, and the cabbie and Uncle Andrew, well, Uncle Andrew's not so much in awe, but it's almost as if Lewis sort of renders these kind of imaginative worlds of these past and ancient text. And for a brief moment, you forget to be a supercilious modern man. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. That brings me to a question I really wanted to bring up because uh, this really connected some dots for me in terms of Lewis's different projects that he was involved in through his life, which were so various, right? But you talk about looking at the beam and looking along the beam, right? That meditation of the tool shed idea. How does looking at the beam versus looking along the beam, how does this allow us to understand Lewis's fiction and his nonfiction as two sort of complementary aspects of the same project of, of restoring this sort of pre-modern worldview. Yeah, this looking at and looking along, what I think maps onto a similar distinction that he writes about in Surprised by Joy of contemplation versus enjoyment. My ability to analytically break down something and to know to be able to rattle off its definition versus my ability to enjoy a text, to to taste it, or even an idea, right? Um, to use a very sort of biblical metaphor to take and chew on the idea. A sort of a kind of a kind of meditation and slow releasing of, of the flavor. Yeah, I think this 
might be the secret to understanding Lewis's own life as a writer, his, his sort of vocation. In his academic text, he's very careful to be, you know, to give lots of examples but he always quickly wants to describe how, how it feels. And so he conducts thoughts experiments in his scholarly literature. I think analogously, if Lewis is sort of constantly pivoting back and forth to looking at something, to explaining its pieces and showing how it's different, especially in his scholarly writing, I think his fiction, his imaginative fiction can be thought of primarily as looking along. In fact, that's something that he himself said is that I was looking for a way in which I could present the truths of religion, the truths of Christianity, without that weird kind of sanitized, medicalized aspect that I had got as a child and which had left me so, you know, so chilled toward it. Mm-hmm. But if I could constantly pivot back and forth. And so I think that that little metaphor right there, at least for me, I think it's the sort of secret of understanding how these different Lewises are related, right? Those Lewises that when you describe it, as I described at the beginning of this show, as the man who's neurotically obsessed with vocabulary and semantics and detail to this wonderful imaginative writer. Well, if you think about that in his own terms of, of pivoting back and forth to looking at and then looking along, then those aspects of his personality and of his character begin to make sense. question of like why this is necessary right why, why instead of just promoting christianity do we need to recover this right and we, we've talked already about um um how different ages right obviously have different different strengths uh morally especially right and how we we need to allow the clean sea breeze of the centuries to blow through and and, and all of that right um but i think even more than that and you highlight this in the book Lewis viewed part of his projects as being to build a bridge over this sort of great gulf or this great gap or void, right, that he saw as kind of separating us and early 20th century us as well, right, from most of the past. Could you say more about that? What is the gap? What's wrong and unnatural about the modern paradigm and about modern language as far as Lewis was concerned? Why did it need to be transcended? Yeah, I mean, especially in the introduction to his book on 16th century literature and his Cambridge address in 1954 and in book three of Abolition of Man, as well as a couple of other sort of review articles, he sort of beats Charles Taylor by about 50 years to the sort of description of a secular age and what's different about it. And I think in general, I think he would say that modernity is the age beginning, say, in the late 19th century, in which the mechanistic way of thinking about the world had become so obvious and had so deeply penetrated our psyches that an alternative way of seeing the world was completely forgotten. What does that mean? It means that, as Taylor says, that I feel as a post-romantic individual, the real sense of meaning is in my own mind and in my own heart. And what's out there is just a bunch of atoms and molecules interacting through chemical and physical reactions, but they don't mean anything. I sometimes jokingly ask my students a question like, what does the periodic table mean? And the more astute ones say, well, the periodic table is divided into columns and rows to show the atomic number, the number of protons and neutrons, and then they're divided into columns and the color coordinated to show their tendencies to react. 
So yeah, of course, of course. But what does it mean? I mean, why are there 119 elements as opposed to 81 or 27? And when they begin to see what I'm driving at, what does it mean? They all sort of look at me puzzled and say, it doesn't mean anything. It's just science. Science is just a description of facts in the world. It's just material reality. And once we've figured out its secrets of how it interacts, then we can strip it down and rebuild it to my pleasure, right? Whether it's nature, whether it's my body, whether it's anything around me, right? I am the ghost who dictates how material reality ought to be because it has no meaning external to my desires. In some ways, this sounds so obvious. This is what Republicans and Democrats agree on, right? Is the ability to impose utility on the world through our technologies, our economy, our technologies, our science, and make it do what we want. But this is not ancient. This is relatively modern, at least for a medievalist. This is like, you know, like hot stuff, right? 1600s, Francis Bacon and, and Galileo and, and Descartes. But it's, it's a revolutionary way of thinking, which over the course of time is now sort of trickled down so far inside of our psyches that we can't even imagine an alternative. But in the medieval world, it's not like that. In some sense, the external world has value. If you ask the question, what does science mean? They have an answer for that. And Lewis likes to liken it to, this is my favorite favorite sermon by Lewis, I think, uh, right up there with Weight of Glory, at least, is transposition. And Lewis likens it to going and hearing a symphony in the days before electronic recording. And if you went home and you loved your Mahler symphony that you just heard, right? You just heard this gargantuan orchestra of 400 different instrumentalists, right? Well, in an age before recordings, what do you do? You you get some piano music for it, maybe maybe scored for four hands and you play it with a friend. And you can remember the moments in which the flute came in unexpectedly or the violin had a, you know, or the kettle drums, right? Or all of these things together. You can remember it. You can use the limited language of the keyboard to recollect some sense of this higher language of the original symphony. Analogously for Lewis... Lewis's sort of read on the medieval period is even physical realities, you could say even medieval science, quote unquote, was a subset of theology. In the Middle Ages, if you had an experience of beauty, if you had an experience in which you were moved because the world had come to a type of saturation point, and you felt a kind of moral uplift of the soul, a kind of like, uh, as Beatrice describes it to Dante in the Divine Comedy, right? A kind of reverse gravity. You weren't weird. It wasn't yeah. just your own personal, private, emotional response to something, which you then had to apologize for, for geeking out on, right? Think how people who love text and love literature and love beauty were sort of constantly apologizing for doing so. Oh, sorry, I was just nerding out on that, right? Mm -hmm. in, in modernity, we feel strange for these types of loves. Whereas in the Middle Ages, it would have felt like going along with the tide. There was a type of spiritual tide, spiritual gravity of uplift in which aesthetic experiences, the experiences of beauty, as well as sort of deep moral yearnings made sense in that world. Whereas for us, the sort of privatized personal values, which I cannot relate to the external world. I think if you begin to play out those two different tracks, right, of a mechanistic assumption of the world in which technology is the chief good, it's what Pierre Hadot calls the Promethean attitude toward reality, that is the, the famous God from mythology who steals fire and comes and brings it down versus the other approach to reality, which I call iconic, thinking of a type of Byzantine icon. Hmm. It's limited 
its facial structures are simplified because it's always meant to be suggestive of a transcendent reality just behind it, a window. I think if you begin to think about those two things, you can see how different the pre-modern and modern cultures are. that the universe means something, right? And, and in itself, it means something. And we can discover that meaning outside of our own hearts and brains. But our hearts and brains can kind of partake of the reality of these things, right? Of the meaning of these things, which is more than just physical. Yeah, because I'm not sure that in, in the different interviews that I've done on this book, if anyone has asked me the why question, I mean, that's much more interesting and much more difficult than just the, I mean, the how and the what question are tough enough, right? But you're asking me, you know, not just what did Lewis say about the Middle Ages and how was it different, but why was he himself so moved by trying to carefully recover it and, and cultivate it? And I think that's a hugely interesting question. Anytime you asked him in a formal setting, he has very modest answers, right? For example, the end of the, uh, the Cambridge address I've referred to a couple of times. If he says, hey, look, I don't think we should completely forget our ancestors. And so I'm just going to hold a candle up in the darkness so that we can adequately represent what they used to think. So I mean, oftentimes Lewis describes himself as doing this, just saying, hey, I'm not saying that we need to become medievals again. Right? right. I'm just saying that we've probably misunderstood how they thought. It's, it's, a, it's a very it's a very demure um, description. Sometimes you can catch him being a little bit bolder by suggesting that there were certain medieval beliefs or certain medieval practices which have been forgotten and in which they did better than we did. For example, I think if you think about how we read, or I guess these days in texting culture, um, don't read as much as we used to, right? right? Mm -hmm. And expectations are that I'm going to have a huge library, like a good research library is what, you know, three to four million volumes, right? You need to adequately possess the totality of possible books, right? Whereas great scholars in the past, like an Aquinas, would have would have had between two to three hundred books on the shelf. Now the difference is obviously a modern reader might encounter you know a thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand books, and Aquinas might have only encountered two hundred, but he had them all memorized. He had them all mastered. He read with the expectation of memory, yeah. whereas we don't read with the expectation of memory. I, if my students come to class and I say, "Did you read the text?" and they say, "Absolutely, I did," and they say, "Okay, well, what were the arguments?" and they look at me sort of puzzled, like, "Why would you even ask me that?" Right. right. What's happening is that they're telling me I read the quote unquote, read the text. I looked at all the words in the correct order. Whereas I think our ancestors would have said, you read it with the expectation of memory. And if you don't remember it, you can't even claim the title of having read. So I think that's sort of something of kind of, uh, I guess you call it medieval study habits. Right. Or just sort of a medieval relationship to to knowledge that if I haven't permanently impressed it on my memory such that I begin to desire the thing it's talking about, the good behind it, then I probably haven't learned yet. I think that would be an example of one of the sort of things that Lewis would try to rehabilitate or capture. Right. But I think the most interesting thing of Lewis, and I think for a Inklings variety show, this is (laughs) where Tolkien and Lewis and Williams and Barfield all start coming into focus, is something that his buddy Barfield said. That is, we have to go through modernity, not back from 
Yes. You have to go through modernity, not back from. I think Lewis, who never denied the realities of modern science, in fact, he seemingly read it as a kind of amateur with real interest over the course of his life, never thought we should leave that behind, but also thought we shouldn't forget this iconic paradigm, symbolic world such that if we could preserve both these sort of modern tendencies of science, as well as the sort of medieval feeling about the iconicity of the universe, we would come, and Barfield's very much interested in this, isn't he, into a yeah. final participation in which our ancient knowledge and our modern knowledge, our ancient sort of, I don't know, along the beam knowledge and our mm -hmm. modern at the beam knowledge could reintegrate themselves to create a holistic approach to the world. Yeah. yeah. I wish I could find Lewis saying that more than the, right. just the sentence en passant. There are a couple of moments in book three of Abolition of Man. I think he's Barfieldian to the core. Yeah. And so his, the real motivation of being a medievalist has something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. I loved that. I, I'm so glad that you brought up Barfield because I was thinking Barfield during at least half of when I was reading this book and thinking, I wonder if he's going to bring up Barfield. I wonder if, because it's- Only in a couple of footnotes, yeah. It's totally, yeah, it, it's a dialectic between analytical modes of consciousness, right? What, what moderns are so good at doing, reducing yeah. everything down so that everything means something slightly different, but then pairing that with sort of the rich imagination of, and poetry. Yeah of past ages, right? And allowing right. us to talk to each other and inform each other. It's yes. absolutely part of Barfield's project. Yes. I loved how you brought that kind of idea to a, a fuller flourish, I guess, in the conclusion where you talk about nostalgia for the future. The fall into reductionist modern thinking might actually end up being a fortunate fall. And, and, and throughout the book, there are so many different medieval touchstones that you sort of talk about both how they influence Lewis's thought in a lot of his scholarship and his essays, but also how Lewis kind of represents them to modern audiences, right, through his fiction, uh, whether it's, you know, whether it's Dante, whether it's the mystics, whether it's um, writers like Bernardus uh, Silvestris. It's, it's a real just tour de force of all the different medieval touchstones that, that Lewis really kind of makes new and helps us appreciate in new ways. I love your concluding note that this sort of view of the past and this love of the past doesn't need to turn us into cranky conservatives, that basically we can use this to live in hope, right? Um, and, and you call this nostalgia for the future, right? It kind of makes this fall into reductionist modern thinking that, that our whole society has fallen into, it makes it a fortunate fall. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, famously, there's this notion in the, well, now it's in the Easter vigil, Holy Saturday Mass of the Felix Culpa or the happy fall to which Augustine in a moment of exuberance says, maybe man's sinning was actually a blessed fault because it elicited the incarnation of Christ. And that's considered, you know, bad theology, but sort of, you know, Augustine uh, doing improv. But I like this idea of a kind of a new Felix culpa that we, in some ways we would think that the descent into modernism 
right? The the emptying out of the interior, um, the emptying out of meaning in the world would be nothing but apocalyptic, nightmarish, strident, anxiety-producing world effects. But if there were another way to think of it that, look, if the reality is the heart is restless until it rests in you, as Augustine says in Confessions, then maybe in a weird way, if you lived in a, a better world, quote unquote, if you lived in a more medieval world in which it was sort of saturated by meaning, if, as I try to argue in chapter two, the world in whatever way felt like a cathedral, saturated in uplifting, anagogic is the term for it, sense of meaning, then would it be easier to be content in just your ordinary historical temporal reality? Whereas in our world, as Flannery O'Connor told an atheist friend, it's not just a couple of saints who go through a dark night of the soul. It's the whole world, right? <laughs> we live in the desert. You don't have to be a hermit now. You don't have to be a St. Anthony of Egypt and, you know, and go out to the, the deserted plains of Egypt. You can just be a modern. Yeah. And in some sense, I think just sort of dealing with a world of secularism, live in sort of desert-like conditions in which it's hard for us to, to rest with complacency in this world. I guess spiritual people, maybe you just put it this way, spiritual people feel sort of twice as hungry in this world. And I think for Lewis, that actually might have been a Felix Kolpa, as I think you so brilliantly uh, put it, that to have some sort of, can we put it this way, spiritual fasting Mm -hmm. makes me nostalgic, gives me a type of longing, hunger, and desire for the fullness of reality, which is around the corner. And that's that kind of destroys what I jokingly call a grumpy conservatism, right? Right. It sort right. of destroys this grumpy conservatism that just says uh, nowadays youngsters are just, right? As if there would be some sort of decade or some sort of century in which you would then be perfectly happy and perfectly full. I honestly believe that some ages have been better than ours in many things and maybe even in most things. So I, I believe in a, the reality of a type of decadence, right? A, a right. type of decline. But I think there's also this other component in which the sort of deep happiness, the deep satisfaction is going to be a theological reality. And so maybe having nostalgia for the future is this kind of neat Lewis-like insight into liberating us from petty fears and anxieties as if we had been born out of time. Yeah, of course yeah. you've been born out of time. Yeah, that's very well said. I loved about this movie that really did challenge me as both an academic and, and someone who likes to do creative things from time to time to not look at the world as empty of meaning and to not just be so quick to turn to irony and sarcasm and, and, and this sort of assumption that the world is empty, which is so easy to do. And, and in fact, a lot of times, you know, when I am writing something creative or when I'm teaching something as well, the temptation very often just to get kind of a laugh or a chuckle, right, out of, out of someone can be to subvert the past rather yes. than representing it, right? Um, I, I was wondering in terms of either scholarship, but, but especially authors or creatives or filmmakers, can you think of someone who's doing this really well right now, who's rather than subverting the past, rather than undercutting the past and pointing to people of the past and saying, look how dumb they were, allowing the past to come into conversation with the, the current 
moment. Yeah, what a cool question. Yeah, I think I, I, I like what you say. And I, I certainly know the, the tendency. I, I jokingly call it the Simpsons effect, yes. right? In which it's it's impossible to to say anything without kind of you know, acidically corroding it a little bit on the outside. It's just our sort of our latent cynicism. And I think our ancestors might have been kind of stern with us and say, <laughs> you are irreverent. Yeah. You lack piety. Do you believe that everything is a, is suitable for mockery? Yeah. Birds are yelling at Dante in the, in, yes. in the eighth level. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I so I think I think there's a lot of interesting things happening in in classical music. I think, for example, James McMillan's new song, you know, this five minute piece in which he uses five or six different sort of techniques from historical classical music forms, things that don't really, quote unquote, don't really belong together, but he sort of weaves them into this incredible fabric, so it sounds both new and old. I love this piece by Pierre Shapelov, who set some of Boethius's hymns for the Constellation of Philosophy to music, but he uses contemporary, really interesting moments of atonality in order to emphasize Boethius's own plight and lamentation. I think beyond the, the context of music, I'm a big fan of uh, Eugene Vodoloskin's Laurus, um, yes. in which he does kind of magical realism plus historical fiction plus you know, Russian medieval theology. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think this is this is kind of a neat age in a postmodern age in which, as the world increasingly secularizes, we're asking questions: What could Christianity be? What should Christianity be? Then the question of well, what has Christianity been? All of a sudden reemerges. So it's kind of a pre-modern, postmodern alignment, and I think there's lots of really interesting interesting space for creative interactions. level but it absolutely the 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 synthesis of the different sort of strands of lewis really you know really to take the a metaphor that you like it's cathedral like um and it was uh it was it was really enjoyable to read so again i recommend this to our listeners if you really want to take hold of an aspect a really important aspect of c.s lewis that's been undervalued until this point pick up this book it's clear and it's challenging in in the best sense of the word very enjoyable jason baxter thanks again so much for coming on the show. Where can people find and, and follow you? Thanks. I have a website, jasonmbaxter.com, jasonmbaxter.com that has links to my books. If your listeners are interested, they can also buy through PayPal a signed copy of the book off the website and I'll sign it and send it to you. It's something that Jeff Bezos won't do for you. If you buy it from <laughs> him, he won't sign his name at the front, but I will sign mine. If That's your listeners right. are interested. Right. Yeah, so Jason and Baxter and my books and some of my popular articles are listed there. Jason Baxter, thank you again for coming on the show. And listeners, thanks for joining us. I'll see you next time.
blessed encounter full of joy unscheduled on the Giesen fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. <laughs>